Hi, folks. This is Gamers with Glasses. I'm Christian Haynes, Managing Editor at Gamers with Glasses. And tonight I am joined by Don Everhart. Hello. And our other Managing Editor, Roger Whitson. Hi there. And tonight we have no special topic. No special topic. It is an emergency session in which we are just (laughs) talking about the games we're playing. Um, And no, it's not because we couldn't come up with a topic. We are all brilliant here. And of course we could have. Uh, We chose not to. Uh, let's just get into it. Uh, so Don, what's something you've been playing? Last night, I played about a couple hours of a independent game, um, Taiwanese game called Opus Echo of Star Song. It's a kind of interesting mix of visual novel, some light walking and platforming, um, and uh, some fairly old school menu driven space exploration uh, with some puzzles thrown in. Um, in inside of the, the light walking along with narrative, there's the occasional door that needs to be opened or pipe that needs to be filled with mysterious cosmic fluid that everyone wants to get their hands on. Um, and, and altogether, uh, I'm I'm torn between thinking, is this just a very competently executed game? Everything about it, it just exudes this level of, yes, we're we're very practical game developers, and we know what's within our means and our scope, and we're going to arrange all of those things so it has a pretty good level of polish, and all the mechanics kind of work together, and the story ticks along. Um, but it does so, so far without much in, in the way of, and, you know, brilliance or surprise or anything like that. Uh, so on the one hand, that's kind of how I feel when I'm playing it. And, and on the other hand, I think, well, you know, actually that mixture of things is kind of ambitious. Uh, it, it's unusual to have a visual novel with so much uh, gameplay and uh, varied types of gameplay rendered in sort of a 2.5D approach when you're walking around on mining asteroids. And then again, this sort of flat galaxy view where you're uh, balancing the fuel costs and the random encounters with bounty hunters after your characters and everything else like that. Um, and, And really it could have been it could feel like a few games inelegantly mashed into one. Uh, and instead, no, the, the seams don't really show. Everything sort of just smoothly transitions from one way of playing the game to another. Um, and, and that is kind of neat. I, I like when you get like the graphic novely or, uh, you know, visual novel style game that introduces more game mechanics. Maybe it's because I'm not a huge fan of, uh, <laughs> you know, visual novels, but I think one of the reasons why, like I've actually enjoyed sporadically playing the Phoenix, Wright Like 
original mm-hmm. trilogy uh and i guess this is maybe a little bit too far afield but like the professor Layden games is because of that integration of puzzle mechanics into uh a visual novel like a narrative appeal like i like narrative games but not visual novel narrative games as much but those the, adding some puzzling to it yeah i mean they, they do purposefully say uh you know nowhere on their marketing materials are the two words visual and novel put together they're very insistent in their marketing <laughs> instead that this is a narrative game and yet you know when the bulk of your game is comprised of you know the the figures that you have being animated in the background well in the foreground there's dialogue boxes with portraits of the characters speaking it can't help but feel to me like uh you kind of have a visual novel approach so So is there oh go for it roger what would you just just for someone who knows nothing about narrative games because i don't tend to play them but like what would you say is the difference between a narrative game, generally speaking, and a visual novel? I think that one is a subset of the other. A visual novel has a few more genre hallmarks and design hallmarks than a narrative game. Um, Narrative games uh, are more expansive and more flexible as Echo uh, or Opus Echo of Star Song is. Um, So in that regard, it is maybe a little more narrative game than visual novel because it provides that varied gameplay to it. It isn't simply dialogue and menu driven. It isn't solely reliant um, on, you know, the action really taking place only within those dialogue boxes and against that background. Um, And the choices in gameplay that you make are more expansive uh, than can be given within dialogue options. Um, so things like uh, you have your spaceship and some typical spaceship resources, scavenger kits and fuel and armor and things like that. And you click from asteroid to asteroid and space station to space station to go to different locations and meet different objectives. And as you do so, it costs fuel. If bounty hunters shoot your ship, it costs armor. Uh, that gives you a range of, of different possibilities inside of the otherwise largely story and dialogue driven framework of the game, which is, is the predominant frame. And it's the predominant thing that happens in any given scene. Um, but there is just that little bit more to it uh, and that little bit more in the way of more varied puzzles and options um, than there often is in at least your average visual novel. Um, On the other hand, uh, the story itself is very, they're they're very eager to establish uh, this science fiction universe with wide-flung cultures and ancient polytheistic religion, things like that. And the setting could be very interesting, but the story they're telling in it is very young noble takes to the stars to try and rescue his, you know, unfavored house uh, in the empire and encounter, you know, makes friends and colleagues that he doesn't expect to. Uh, And despite the fact that a lot of the things in the game have very little in common with it, for all of that, 
because of the main character in the setup, it reminds me of nothing more than the uh, show The Dragon Prince. It has just very sort of smooth YA uh, appeal in it, um, which so far has been, again, a very competently executed, but at the same time, utterly predictable in its story beats. Um, and for a narrative game, that is kind of a downside. Uh, it, it hasn't, like I said, it, it doesn't seem like it contains much in the way of surprise. It's just very coherent. That's interesting. I mean, there's a little bit of damning with faint praise there, but you're also early on in the game. So I imagine you're kind of that just seeing what's going to happen there. Um, I think I'm you, most of the way through two of six chapters. Okay. Something like that. So you've had yeah. a good chunk of the game now. And, so, and it feels like it doesn't, Maybe quite have something that's just raising it above coherent, above like, okay, this is good. This is, you know, fine. Not not yet. I, I mean, I, I would say that out of game, new releases that I've played in, in 2021, it's uh it certainly isn't close to the bottom of that pack and it is also nowhere near the heights of other games uh, mm. th that have have hit this year um it is firmly in the middle uh if you would like to have a well executed narrative science fiction game with some varied mechanics while you pilot your star crew uh through difficult times uh then you know, why not give it a shot? Um, but if, if you're looking for a brand new wondrous experience, um, this is probably not it. <laughs> so I think this is a good moment for me to jump in and talk about a couple of my games. I've been playing too many games lately, uh, in part because there's just a ton of good things coming out right now. Um, and I've somehow managed, I think Roger's actually playing Deathloop right now. Uh, I've, I've managed to play. Just on camera, uh, on yeah. the background. <laughs> That's the way I, to go, I Roger. have to like Twitch and like, for some reason I'm obsessed, like one of my Twitches is like the joystick on these things. That's fine, Roger. You it play Deathloop. Me. You do you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've just been playing sort of rotating between a ton of games, though actually making good progress in a couple. And two of the ones that I will probably finish in the next few days are what I, for our purposes tonight, will call emo games. Uh, the first uh, being The Artful Escape, uh, which was released on Game Pass, I think also on PC as well as Xbox. Uh, and Artful Escape was published by Annapurna. It is nominally a side-scrolling platformer. The developer, by the way, is Beethoven and Dinosaur, which is a great name. It's nominally a side-scrolling platformer, but I say nominally because it's really a game about music and about, it's a Jacob Dylan simulator, essentially. And let me explain. <laughs> So as many of That's you probably know, start. yeah, Jacob Dylan is the son of Bob Dylan uh, and a musician, right? Which if you could imagine like, you know, heavy burden uh, being a bit in your father's shadow, I don't 
you know, this is the, if I'm not mistaken, sole musician to have ever won a Nobel Prize for literature. Uh, and so, you know, this is big shadow, big footsteps to be in. And basically that's the premise of this game is that you play a character who's in the shadow of his uncle, who is this like legendary folk singer, folk rock artist, and basically looked exactly like Bob Dylan from, you know, say the 60s or early 70s. Uh, maybe Nashville skyline sort of Dylan. Uh, but of course you're uncomfortable with this and you have a show coming up and instead of going and playing the show and having a sort of straightforward thing, what the game has you do is get, I won't say abducted by aliens, but let's say seduced by aliens on a cosmic tour of the galaxy where you realize that you're not meant to be a folk singer. You're meant to be like a glam rock star. Uh, it has a very, very late character creation system. Probably the last third of the game, you finally create or recreate your character, uh, which is to say you get to sort of recostume your character and put makeup. I basically made my character, you know, I made the protagonist look like uh, David Bowie circa Stardust, you know, Ziggy Stardust, uh, because of course. Uh, but yeah, you're basically jamming through the cosmos on these levels. There's no difficult platforming. There's no consequences for falling in one of the handful of pits. There's, you just redo that very small portion of the level. It's a very much kind of narrative platformer in a lot of ways, but narrative platformer with good vibes. And let me tell you, this game has a shred button. Press X to shred mm -hmm. your guitar and it like overlaps another soundtrack on top of your soundtrack that you're already hearing that somehow works perfectly. And it's always these like great guitar solos. And it's just a wonderful little game about discovering who you are and escaping the burden of what other people tell you you're supposed to be. I saw, I saw one person in a kind of offhanded way uh, who gave it a very positive review um, I think it was on GameCritics.com maybe, say the only thing that this game is missing is realizing that it's like an allegory for sort of recognizing trans identity, um, which was interest, a sort of interesting throwaway point and I'm still thinking through it, but it is really about kind of like realizing that you have one self that's incompatible with a self that other people expect you to have. And it's just a, it's maybe like a five hour game. I think I have maybe half an hour left of it. Uh, and there, it's chapters broken down in chapters and you can have a chapter select screen and everything you can do. Uh, so yeah, it's just been a, I, I will be honest. I didn't expect to like this game. I played it because it was on game pass and I was just looking for something to download. And when I play game pass games, I'm also playing game pass because I get points for playing games and getting achievements. Uh, so that compels so, me. I, the unified game service. Yeah. I more or less. <laughs> I have a question, Christian. So yeah, jumping around. Here. Given, given the uh, topic theme of the game that you're a folk singer who becomes a psychedelic rock star, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So are you really being seduced by aliens or is something else happening? Like, maybe you're kind of tripping a little bit. Like what is, there's no indication that? of that. There's no indication of that. If anything, they really sort of paint them as a kind of straight laced, like sci-fi reading kind of kid. And uh, there's every indication that this is just happening. Right. And this is the sci-fi story. And to be fair, like it does like really kind of like, it picks up on those great seventies 
concept albums you know on it picks up on like the Ziggy Stardust albums and all those great sci-fi albums that came out in the 70s and the early 80s and just turns it into a game I mean that's the best way to describe it is this is a concept a sci-fi concept album turned into a game and I don't know I mean it I won't say it's going to be one of my like games of the year but it's going to be a game that I remember for several years um Mm -hmm. without having to dig through notes or something uh, the other game that I'll mention that falls under the category of emo game that will be one of my games of the year, if not just enter my like top 10 games list in general, uh, is Life is Strange True Colors, um, which I is just quite simply like really lovely uh, and very moving. And I, you know, I'm saying these are emo games and that's not quite right, but these are games in which like you're rewarded for being vulnerable rather than being powerful, which is the sort of like phrase that popped in my head today. I was like trying to think about why these games were like coming together in my head. And it was like, both of them are about vulnerability and about exposing yourself and about taking a risk. And that risk, you know, isn't jumping over a pit of spikes. It's like letting people know that you're not comfortable in your skin or letting people know that there's something different about you that than what other people expect. Very character driven in that way. Yeah, no, totally character driven. And Alex Chen, who is the protagonist of Life is Strange Two Colors, is one of my favorite characters I've ever encountered in a video game. Um, she, you know, is reuniting with her long lost brother, I guess is probably the best way of putting it. Both of whom seems like bounced around through the foster care system and he was adopted and she wasn't, but in seemingly different places. Like I think he went to Juvie. Uh, and then she reunites with him in a small mining town in Colorado, which to be frank, and I'm going to write about this is like a utopian mining town. (laughs) And by utopian, I mean, like it has a record store. It has a comic shop. It has a dispensary. It has a bar. Yeah. This mining town is doing very well compared to other other mining towns of the Southwest. Yes. Um, And you know, and and to be fair, there like you see some of the labor struggle there, like some of the history of labor struggle kind of cited indirectly. You also, without getting into too much spoiler territory, there there is an intrigue or a mystery that surrounds the mining company that uh, I won't talk more about. But this is a game in which like half of one of the episodes, because it's still broken up in episodes, even though it released all at once, like. You know, the previous Life is Strange games really serially. This one is sort of organized as if it were serially released, but it's not because they realize that that doesn't work for them uh, as a publishing strategy. Uh, financially, it doesn't at least. Uh, but, you know, there was a half an episode where I spent in a LARP, like in a live action role-playing game, trying to cheer up a kid and... You know, during that, they clearly riffed on Final Fantasy games and on turn-based role-playing games. There was another section where I was bartending. uh, And all of it was just conversations. And I had to make a decision earlier today when I played it for just about 15 minutes, because that's all I had time to do, uh, that I think I regret. And that I feel like really kind of pained about a decision about how to interact with somebody and handle some grief and anger that they're feeling. And I'll just say, you know, like all the Life is Strange games, you have a quote unquote superpower, although the character jokes and explains that it's not really a superpower. It's only caused her mostly pain. 
And in this case, you have like super empathy. You can mm. kind of like, if somebody's feeling an intense emotion, you can kind of read their thoughts about it. It seems to be the case. And then at a certain point or in certain points, you can also kind of enter into their memories by way of their emotions, it seems, uh, and reconstruct certain memories. But there's, mm. there was a moment that I find myself almost in tears in part because of personal experience in which you enter the mind of somebody struggling with either dementia or Alzheimer's. And as somebody who lived with somebody who had Alzheimer's for about six years of my life, it's like, I don't think I've seen it represented uh, in a game at all. Maybe I'm sure somebody has done that. And I certainly hadn't seen represented well. And I thought this was pretty well done pretty well. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I've never played a, a life is strange game. You don't need to have played one before, but I'm certainly going to go. I think I own most of them actually. And I certainly mm. will be playing some. It, it's along with Psychonauts too. It's in my, sort of short games of the year less easily. I so, wonder yeah. how much that entering memories mechanic is uh, the studio don't nod um, sort of revisiting one of the highlights of one of their earlier games in Remember Me, uh, which was a game with a lot of ambition, um, combat system, which was very technical and combo based and which I feel like didn't actually, you know, land with uh, a lot of players. Um, an interesting sort of post-Paris uh, setting, um, which they haven't repeated. Mostly, they, it seems like with with Life is Strange and, and some of their other games, they're more interested in uh, visiting other places, uh, chiefly in the United States, although I guess they have uh, a London with a vampire. And yeah. That game also suffered from the emphasis on, on combat, I will say. I, I agree there too. Um, but but I do like that Don't Nod can be ambitious in that way. And, and uh, the highlight of Remember Me was, I think, uncontroversially, uh, that you would enter into characters' minds and remix their memories um, in, in a sort of cyber kind of way and uh and i wonder right is this a, a good way of don't nod thinking oh yeah that was that was really cool being able to enter into other people's memories and sort of rearrange those memories um and rearrange the the interior furniture of other people's minds quite literally uh in, in some yeah. cases i, I uh, think there's without some those traffic that. yeah i think there's some of that i will say one not so minor thing is this isn't don't nod it's deck nine the people that did the prequel to the first life uh, is strange uh, don't nod i actually don't think has the rights to life is strange anymore maybe they're licensing out but i believe square enix uh has it and don't nod i think it's just moved on interesting um, i did not I don't, know that yeah that's it's yeah it's I, in fact, I was sort of like, I was expecting this not to be very good in part because of that. I saw the reviews of it. It was getting these reviews that were saying, this is the best one by far. Don't wait to play kind of deal. And I was like, oh, I could use a narrative game. I need a game that's not bang, bang, shooty, shoot. Um, as much as I love those two. Uh, but there is something there. There is something there about like, I think it's trying to push life is strange and sort of like ways in which, you know, you're sort of expanding the mind into a thing you're going to explore. And I think, shifting the kind of narrative towards that emotional level on a very direct and literal way uh, makes a lot of sense for the series as far as I've heard about it. But 
you know, I can't yeah. say more than that because I haven't played the other games. Yeah. Well, well, credit credit to Deck Nine then, uh, which also probably not a coincidence. Seems like it's a Colorado-based studio. I actually didn't know that, but no, I mean, <laughs> oh my god, the number of Colorado flags. If there's actually any place in Colorado that has that many Colorado flags just hanging up in random places, I would be surprised. <laughs> Maybe in the Deck Nine <laughs> studio headquarters. I don't know. Oh my god, Roger. Roger, Roger, how is your suffering through gameplay going? By which I mean, how is uh, Demon? It's Man? almost over. I mean, it's almost over. I am not the suffering, the gameplay. Oh yeah, I'm literally at the boss, uh, the False King. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have to say, I I really think, and I don't know that this comes as a surprise of anyone who's finished this game that I don't want to say it yet. Every time I, I'm about to say it, I'm worried ab- about jinxing myself. But I do think that Demon's Souls is probably the easiest Souls game. I think mm. it's probably the easiest Souls game. Uh, I think that the, the levels are, are, can be pretty rough in places. Um, like, uh, uh, I, uh, I had a few problems with a few finding a few npcs they have a lot of red uh you know black uh black spirits that you fight um and they can be a little rough um and i would say one or two kind of difficult things but all in all i am a little as someone who's gone through dark souls one through three sekiro and Bloodborne, I've, I was a little underwhelmed by the bosses. Um, they were interesting, certainly, but they weren't they weren't difficult per se. Um, and yeah, it's just it's it's interesting to kind of see them kind of refine that experience. I think as the as from start where I started, you know, making its games more sophisticated. So. I'm I'm nervous that this is all going to fall apart. And now that I've said this, you know the punished. false. I'm going to be punished for it. I'm going to be punished for it. I know that's going to happen, <laughs> but I think it is. And I think you deserve easiest, it. I think it's the easiest soul game. Um, the thing that I will say is like <laughs> the the world tendency system is really bizarre. Like it's, and I don't know, uh, Don. You've played this game, right? You've played Demon Souls. Yeah. I, I haven't played the PS5 edition, but uh, I played the original. Okay, so like World Tendency is basically like all of the all of the levels um, have special events that happen if if the world is in pure what they call pure white or pure black, and in pure white, like things are tend to be easier. Um, but like there are certain like thing there are certain doors that are open only in pure white. Um, et cetera. Whereas pure black, you know, there are certain things you can do in pure black and the, but the, but there are more so-called, uh, black spirit versions of enemies that are much harder. Um, and you get more souls. Um, it's a little, it's, it's a kind of a clunky system because like, it's really hard. It's very hard to get it into pure white. Like the first to get a level into pure white, the first, the, Bulletarian Palace level. I wasn't aware of the world tendency system before that. And I 
messed up my you basically have to defeat all the bosses without dying as a human um and i messed that up and uh i don't think i can get it back like i don't think i can get back the the pure white the pure white thing and so i don't know like it's interesting so like so i wanted to sort of as as i finished this game i kind of wanted to open up this question um about how long we how what what kind of legs we think the souls souls franchise or souls like games maybe have if they're if they're going to be i mean i think they're becoming more ubiquitous in some ways um but i also think that like i playing this game you know it was fine <laughs> but it's like it's like i'm i'm imagining sekiro being such a much more interesting experience and i and i suspect that elden ring would be an even more you know, interesting experience as they sort of really sort of expand beyond, I think the models of demon souls and dark souls. And so I, I'm not sure it's, it's interesting. I wonder if what we know is souls like games are, they're just going to kind of disappear into the mechanics of other games that have different things to say, uh, or, uh, if this genre will continue on, I'm not sure. What do you all think? I feel like Don's much more the expert than I am. I I do have lots of thoughts, but I I didn't want to no no Don jump in inundate the the podcast with them. Um, well, I I think the first one is is out there in the open, and and that's that yes, there are loads of other games that either that more or less directly lift mechanics and systems from the Souls games, um, and. Uh, I like that. I like that you can go around and play um, Neo, for example, uh, or or Neo 2, and have a Souls-like idea. There's some summons, there's the possibility of an invasion, the emphasis on gear, giving your character different movesets is there, some of the difficulty of fighting enemies is there. But then it's compensated for, uh, in some ways, by um, giving you just a hugely expanded version of an arsenal and this loot system and these spectacular chi moves that just explode out of the game with color and verve. Uh, and and I think that's really cool. I think it's really cool that uh, we have games that expand on souls in that way um similarly i think it's cool that we have games like the surge uh i think it's cool that we have games like remnant from the ashes um and uh, uh the whole wide range of them i think it's cool that death loop has an invasion mechanic where other players can come into your game playing the primary named antagonist of the game and not an anonymous phantom and ruin your day um, I'm going to have a blast both uh, on the receiving end of that and invading other people's games. I'm extremely confident that that's something I will very much enjoy in Deathloop. But mentioning that, everything else about Deathloop seems very distant from Dark Souls in its approach. So they they look at at that sort of asynchronous, persistent multiplayer, and they thought. Yeah, yeah, everyone's really interested in that. I mean, even Death Stranding, which I talked about in the last podcast, has some influence 
Uh, it's just purely cooperative influence of asynchronous multiplayer affecting your world. Um, as other players go, they can drop you loot and things like that, which, uh, you know, you friendly phantoms in Dark Souls can choose to do. You can get all kinds of sweet gear from benevolent Souls players. So in a way, okay, sure. The mechanics are already being dissolved into these other games in fun and interesting ways. In another way, we get games that expand on the Souls formula and take it places where FromSoft has not yet been willing to go. And then hopefully, Roger, like you're saying, what, what I, and what I would really like to see uh, is FromSoft uh, themselves doing something new and different um, with, with the ideas that they've uh, so popularized throughout video games. Um, and hopefully they continue to head in that direction. Uh, I didn't have the time to really get into Sekiro um, in terms of the amount of time I thought I would need to devote towards repeating fights to master them. Mm. Uh, but that didn't stop me from thinking, yeah, this is FromSoft trying something new and experimental and taking things in a different direction. And I really appreciate that. Um, and I'd like to see more of it. Yeah, so what, what, you, what I was reminded of, um, particularly playing this game, this is the first time I've ever played Demon's Souls. And so um, Demon's Souls for a long time was the game, the Souls game, the of, of From Software's Souls games that I hadn't played. Um, and so I was expecting, you know, like I didn't expect it to be as refined as the later games, but it was really cool. One thing that, you know, this invasion mechanic, it was just really cool to see, um, for instance, a boss like the old monk. Um, so like the old yeah. monk is this, is this, you go into this room and it's this giant, like, like, well, he's, he's sort of a human size uh zombie-like character who ha is, has this giant like dress kind of dress frock on that is covering all of these uh chairs and he summons someone and he summons he basically summons another player who is like entered into this competition and so the boss is like you're fighting this other player and so it's a struck it's a very interesting i think experiment and it, it fascinated me because that mechanic i don't think appeared again until dark souls 3 on the dlc um and i'm blanking on the on the boss name it's but in like two. Oh, it, oh yeah it is with yeah with yeah, mirror yeah. Knight. with the mirror knight yeah you're right you're right i forgot and about i that. love mirror knight into for that reason um because it's, yeah. it's such a cool instantiation i like that the old monk is there sort of passively summoning but i also like that the mirror knight is itself a huge from soft guy in armor boss but with this giant mirrored sword that up to three different antagonizing players can step through and into right. your world uh, such a cool right. way to have people enter like play me on mirror knight yeah <laughs> all I would, of this I sounds mean, awful <laughs> it just seems like such an interesting way to think about multiplayer mm -hmm. right um, and I hope that they do more with that. Like, like, why not create a kind of multiplayer experience where various types of enemies are played by other players, right? Um, Absolutely. Just be really interesting. 
So that's, that's uh, one of my favorite parts of the Souls games. Um, the one that I've played the most, unsurprisingly, uh, is is the original Dark Souls, but not because I've done a lot of New Game Plus runs um, or speed runs of it. Uh, although I do have a lot of speed run routes for it because I liked to do tournaments and fight clubs um, organized outside of the game on Fora mm-hmm. and uh, that. And a, a good way to be able to build up a character quickly so that I could experience different builds and basically have a different multiplayer fighting game character would just be to rip through the first few hours of the game running and chasing down the gear that I wanted. Uh, so then I could hop into the fight club and face off against other players, custom dark souls bills. And it is still one of my favorite ways of doing multiplayer. Um, Mm. I, I love the souls multiplayer and I think it, it does take a weirdo to think that that is a great way to put together a multiplayer game compared to just hopping in a lobby and, playing a character and away you go playing multiplayer with other people and having a good time. Uh, but it, it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I just really love this idea. I just love the way that they do with it narratively too, that you have all of these different people. I mean, the central way they do it is through um, the guilds, right? Like, mm-hmm. but um, you have all these people who are in the same place and they all have different purposes. They, they have, they're either there to protect you. They're there to like, I love the, what, what were the purple, the purple spirits in Dark Souls 3 who you couldn't tell? Uh, you'd collect, yeah, like bone shackles from them. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to remember what the head of the faction was. Um, I, but anyway, like yeah. they could help you or they could harm you. You never knew. And that was just so My favorite thing to play. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's dark. That was my whole Dark Souls experience. The the rest of the game uh, can be, you know, very pretty, has some art direction, I think, borrowed heavily from Bloodborne. And and it's in Dark Souls Mm -hmm. 3's favor that it came after Bloodborne and had that advantage. But I remember very little, honestly, about it, except all of the good times I had as a purple phantom. (laughs) Yeah, Christian is dying. I am dying. No, no, no. So what I was thinking of coming, you know, back to Roger's question about like this tension between on the one hand, I think there's, you've got like from soft, which you, without even being reduced to as a, you know, creative director as Miyazaki. Um, Yeah. Hidetaka Miyazaki. Yeah. uh, Well, even without being reduced to his quote unquote vision, I think has sort of iterated on a design ethos that is very tight. Um, and I think done extremely well. And I say this is somebody who doesn't love their games, but even I, when I play them, I recognize this sort of integrity, the way it's designed, the level design to the sound design, um, to the feel of the game. Um, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping this next one, uh, the name of which has just escaped me for the moment. Elden Ring. Elden Ring, thank you, will be the one that gets me. Um, but uh, but I you know the tension between that on the one hand and then everybody adopting these souls mechanics, I think part of the problem there, right, is what do other developers see in mm. Dark Souls, right? I think some of them just see the difficulty, 
I think some of them see the difficulty as one of the main points, but then uh, find ways to make it their own. I tend to think that about Hollow Knight, for example. Um, which I actually, I will say, I don't love the level design of even as I like the combat. Um, but then you have games where it just like feels a little messy sometimes, maybe. Uh, and messy's not always bad, right? Like, I think the first Neo felt a little messy to me. Uh, the, it's much more polished in two. Yeah. Yeah. That's but, what I, I've heard too is, strong. Yeah. Uh, it felt like they were sort of still figuring it out, you know, which makes sense, right? Uh, you know, from sauce been iterating a lot on this. And uh, I, I think there's this question about will people ever actually get tired of FromSoft games? And then if they do get tired of them, will it actually be because they've been playing too many non-FromSoft from soft like <laughs> games, which I think, well, is, I think you know, to get their fix as it were before the next one I, comes out. I remember when Miyazaki said, you know, the third Dark Souls is the last Dark Souls and being frustrated by that. But I think there was some, like, I think he knew. I think there was something, you know, even wanting more. Yeah. And like, leave before you've overstayed your welcome kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, like the fact that Sekiro, certainly Sekiro has a lot of like, like Dark Souls elements in it, but it's very, it's a very different game in a lot of ways. Um, There's a jump button. Yeah. There's a jump button. There's you need uh, a wonderful grappling hook. Uh, that grappling hook is so enjoyable. It's so good. I do like it's the so grappling good. hook in that. I did not get very far because I'm not good at that game. Uh, and it is a very hard game. But uh, I You just have to yell a lot, man. That's all it's all about the yelling. <laughs> I'm not allowed to yell at video games in my household. Oh. Oh, okay, okay. So I think this might actually be my big problem. <laughs> it, it's true. If if you can't uh release some of the pressure of playing a game like Sekiro, you're you're done for. It's never yeah. it's not gonna come together. Yeah. yeah. To I be fair to you, that I can break um, <laughs> your forehead. Oh uh, yeah. So I, I think this is a good place to transition to another game that you're playing, though, Don, which also has, I would say, immensely tight level design. Uh, and, you know, I, which is not Deathloop. You thought you were going to be playing Deathloop, but what are you playing? I thought I was going to be playing Deathloop. And instead, uh, as I often do when I'm really excited to play a game, before it comes out, instead of thinking, oh, I don't want to play anything like this game. I want to, you know, save myself for the main course. Instead, I go for a game with exactly what I want out of the game I'm excited for that I already have. (laughs) And in this case, I'm playing Hitman. Uh, Hitman 3 in particular, Uh, although in order to play Hitman 3, um, and I played Hitman 1, and then I played Hitman 1 in Hitman 2, and then I played Hitman 2 in Hitman 2, uh, and I didn't play the Hitman 2 additional maps in Hitman 2, but I got Hitman 3, so then I played the additional Hitman 2 maps in Hitman 3, and there's this wonderful thing in all of IO Interactive's recent Hitman games where you can do that. You can just import the whole previous game into the new game with all of the gameplay benefits thereof. Uh, So you're playing these previous levels, but you might have some new abilities and um, options and movement and costumes and all of this spectacular stuff. And you can go back and say, oh yeah, Hitman 1 level with my Hitman 3 gear. Let's play around in this wonderful clockwork 
social sim, extremely voyeuristic uh, murder simulator. Although it's less of a murder simulator and more of a comedy, what could go wrong simulator. Um, And uh, so far, three has not disappointed at all in that regard. Um, If anything, I feel like three has a vision for how much how many different types of games io interactive thought that they could put into hitman Mm -hmm. while keeping it hitman so you open up in dubai you can follow you can choose to follow mission stories where they sort of plot out motions and options where you can gather your assassination targets together or put them into you know situations where they can be killed in accidents and no one even knows that there was a assassin around and that kind of thing and dubai is like a 20 minute version if you follow the the mission of like big sweeping cinematic rooms in the burj khalifa that's called a burj something else and you get the like the directed like what if hitman wasn't as sandboxy but was instead a very tightly designed single player you're just following the objective game so you play to buy you play it that way you can play it another dozen ways if you want you move on uh and each level kind of opens up a little bit more on that you play dartmoor and you, there's a there's a mission story to follow again but this time if you follow the first one you encounter it's a locked door mystery and you gather clues inside of this mansion to solve a murder inside of the mansion uh, so that you can gain access to the person who hired a private investigator to solve this murder. And then you murder them because it's 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 Hitman. And that's ultimately what you're probably doing. But on your way there, you get to dig through an uh, entire wealthy landholding English family's dirty laundry. Uh, very, very nice out. Very nice out. Right. Next level, you go to Berlin. There's a rave in a decommissioned power plant. Your mission stories pretty much don't have them anymore you've got five different targets and your goal is to kick bags of bricks off of the roof onto their heads if you're me uh and that was great totally different way to play the game and so far each level in hitman 3 has been rewarding in that way um it doesn't it it hasn't yet done what happened occasionally in one and two where you'd get one or two maps where it was a little bit of a repeat you know, sort of a large compound area with park around it and had a nice sandbox to do it. And they, it's just in a, a different, beautiful area where you're murdering heinously wealthy people. Uh, and instead in three, nope, every map gets to be a different game. And that <laughs> has been delightful. Yeah, that's, I do hear mixed things about the ending in part because I think it's just, how do you end a trilogy like that? Uh, <laughs> You know, how do you tie that bow, especially when you have other things to do? Because the next thing that they're doing, if I'm not mistaken, is the James Bond game. They have the license oh, yeah, for James Bond. So I think that's the next thing they're doing, um, which, I mean, seems fitting, though I'm curious to what degree they lean into the a little bit more action set pieces for something like that. Um, but uh, I played through, I think, the same place you are, which is I played all the way through Berlin. And I think... For some reason, I got distracted and didn't go back. Um, should go back at some point. But yeah, each of those just felt so different. I, I think I just wanted a murder spree in Berlin now. And then in like Dartmoor, I played a very tight 
uh yeah it, it's cool the art piece in dubai oh yeah um well I mean, and that's actually like one of the perfect examples of playing hitman and then discussing hitman with someone else who's played it you eventually turn into shorthand for the ludicrous opportunities that you have you're like the art piece in dubai the catwalk in paris Right. And you can just list off these collections of it's like a Mad Lib uh, of uh, location, object, disguise. Um, And and the game is very funny. Um, 47 has a a very dry wit. Your your chameleon hitman, in fact, has loads of character um, and is such a tease he's constantly engaging in conversations with his targets where they ask him questions and he finds a euphemistic way to reply directly to their question while also saying directly to a person's face i am here to murder you (laughs) and he does this over and over and over again it's his favorite joke and he never gets tired of it and uh, it, I mean, he's it's, a it's great. It's a great joke. Well, he, he shows up and they're like, hello, are you the cleaner? And he's like, some cleaning will be done today. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's so corny. He can't help himself, this guy. Uh, and, and it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I think games that have a sense of humor that maybe shouldn't have a sense of humor are definitely great. Actually, Dark Souls might fall under that category from... It, it seems like the moments I played in Dark Souls are moments where it just seems to have a kind of sense of humor, although a nastier sense of humor than even Hitman. Um, it, it can be a little bit mean spirited, but Dark Souls certainly has a sense of humor. <laughs> oh man! So in my spree of games, uh, I'm trying to think what makes sense to talk about next. Uh, but you know, I've been playing things that range from like a few minutes here and there of the most recent WarioWare game uh, to a couple very small post-apocalyptic games. Maybe I'll just talk about those really briefly. Um, And I think I want to write about these, but I think for for me, at least, the post-apocalyptic kind of wasteland has gotten a little boring. And when I'm in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, in a video game, mostly I just want really good shooting out of it. So if you know I'm dabbling in a game like Rage 2 or something, right? Like which I'll play because it has id software style shooting, even though it was developed by Avalanche because it helped them with the text uh with the engine. Uh, you know, that's the case just because I'm so bored with wastelands and with apocalypses, I guess. But there are two games recently that have helped me enjoy the kind of post-apocalyptic setting. Uh one of them is a really small, almost diorama style game called Cloud Gardens. Uh, I've actually played it for a while on PC in early access, uh, but they were nice enough to send me a code for the Xbox version. Uh, And so I got a chance to play it again on console. Uh, I was a little worried about how it would play on console, but it mostly plays really well on console. Occasional camera issues that I think work a little bit better with a mouse rather than an analog stick. But uh, Basically, you're just, yeah, like the you know, title suggests you're gardening, but you're gardening in these kind of like landscapes after humans have clearly departed. These almost like deindustrialized, like, you know, a wastelands, like a shopping plaza where there's like, you know, a shopping cart and a car that's clearly been rusting there for a century or something. 
And the goal on each level, and it's a pretty long campaign, uh, is to just grow enough there using this built environment as a structure that supports the plants. And there are different kinds of seeds and the seeds have mm-hmm. to be cultivated or placed in certain places to optimize their growth. And if you optimize their growth, then you get more seeds. And the way you the fail state is basically not like finding the best places to put these seeds so you don't grow it enough and don't get enough seeds to continue filling out the space. So the goal is in a certain sense to rewild a kind of landscape that's been abandoned by humans who... I mean, my reading of this is they're extinct, but there's no suggestion of a narrative here. I actually think that part of the strength of the game is that it doesn't bother with narrative. It's just suggestive Hmm. of a story. And the graphics are very kind of, and the music are sort of lo-fi, voxel-y sort of graphics. And that's, I'm trying to remember if it actually, if it is voxels. I can't remember the press release on it, Uh, but it has the look of a voxel game. yeah, and it's just it's delightful, and um, it sounds very calming. Right? Yeah, Ro- Roger is over over here, uh, waiting to see if the false king is uh, going to make good on his smack talk. And meanwhile, you're playing Cloud Gardens, thinking, yeah. "Can I use that rebar for a nice tomato plant?" No, exactly, right? Like, will my vine flourish on this uh, highway uh, side? And it's like, yes, yes, it will, but only if I place it right here because it'll crawl across the sign, reach this other sign and just continue expanding its tendrils. And there's just something sort of delightful about sort of flipping that switch and saying, you know what? Something might come after human beings that's just okay. Right. Like not that I want humans to go extinct. I always sort of caution against that kind of weird dystopian utopianism where you're like, yeah, screw humans, let them go extinct because that, uh, there's, that there's tends to fascism in there. Yeah. And it, the really. people that get hit the hardest there are the people that have already been hit the hardest by other, every other shitty historical event on uh, people of <laughs> color and other marginalized communities. So, uh, and then I played another game that I only bought because it was one of these switch games that was like, you know, before it actually releases, we're going to give you 30% off and 30% off for this was like $4 and it's called golf club wasteland. And it's a golf game. Actually, it's more of a golf game than I expected. It's just a golf hmm. game, kind of Mario golf style, except, uh, you know, very much like 2d platformer in it's like sort of panoramic, uh, camera. Uh, you know, you're just like the levels laid out and you're trying to get over some obstacles and, but, the narrative premise, and here is a moment where like a thin but well-done narrative premise makes all the difference. The narrative premise is that humans have abandoned the earth, uh, but only rich humans were able to abandon and everybody else died off. And those rich humans go back to earth to play golf, right? <laughs> Just because it's like the ultimate golf course. So, so the actual <laughs> results of eco-fascism. Oh my gosh. And it's like Here's your lot, apocalypse for yeah. you. There's okay. lots of references to Elon Musk. There's lots of reference. There's lots of like satirical jabs. But what makes this game is the soundtrack. All of which from what I can tell is not only original music, but a radio station that they developed all this, not just music for, but like chat. Right, like call and chat, all of which is within this fictional universe. 
and in which there's like people like sort of confessing about how shitty they feel about having abandoned earth and like where they got or people just a lot of detail i mean like you do not expect it coming and it's like it's moving right i will admit i don't play most switch games listening to audio too much just because it's so easy to watch another episode of justified while playing you know a warrior game or something um but uh but this one got me and it's it's just a golf game but it's more than a golf game and these two games cloud gardens and uh golf club wasteland have sort of reinvigorated for me the possibilities at least of post-apocalyptic narrative and video games um something that i had like you know i think the last one I actually liked it even then there were some tired aspects to it was uh Naughty Dog's Last of Us Part Two, um, which of that was well done, but even then I there were moments where I was like, Yes, I've seen this trope. Uh you're just doing it super well. Uh whereas something like uh what's the motorcycle game, which was ticking off uh, all the tropes. Days gone. Days yeah. gone, which was just like post-apocalyptic sons of anarchy, like was a game that I think I played literally half an hour of i think that was went, probably went back to GameStop. it, it was really it was really interesting to like sort of note especially the last of us and last of us 2 like the last of us came out when it came out it was like on the heels of the zombie help you know the zombie popularity thing and then when last of us part two came out it really felt it felt like you should have come out with this five years ago yeah. like this is you know as much as i enjoyed it it was like it definitely was not a sort of a sort of uh uh in vogue game at all so. this is where we raised the question about the the cost the toll of triple a game development <laughs> whether or mm-hmm. not it's mm-hmm. worth it and you know not just on the marketing level but on the fact that like they couldn't come out five years earlier because they had to exhaust a bunch of people to make the damn game. Um, to even get it to come out when it did. Yeah, yeah, which was uh, you know delayed a number of times. People, yeah, uh, unconscionably hard. And again, um, I say this about a game that I like, but you know, I think there's yeah, still an yeah. ethical question about whether or not it should exist. Uh, you, yeah. you can, yeah, you can like uh, a game or any piece of media while still recognizing and recognizing uh, its human costs. Yeah. So last two games I played really quickly that I want to talk about, and then I want to open up to you guys and ask you a question uh, about what these games are doing, maybe. Uh, Those are The Ascent and Foreclosed. Foreclosed, I'll just uh, flag, I did receive a code for. Um, uh, Foreclosed was developed by... Uh, one second, I need to look up the game studio because I should have done my homework beforehand. Uh, bad teacher, uh, me. But uh, NTAB Studios and Merge Games. Um, and, and this is uh, definitely this is definitely not a game where you're. It's a, not a simulation where you're foreclosing on homes, right? That's not what this is. No, that game does exist though. House Flipper, uh, uh, right? You can yeah. get that on Steam. Um, but no, I, that might be more interesting. For, so foreclosed is a game where your identity has been stolen. It's a cyberpunk game, right? Your identity has been foreclosed and therefore you your existence itself is illegal. There's corporate intrigue. Uh, the, and you know the thing that makes this game distinct is that it takes the aesthetic of a graphic novel or of comic books and applies it to the video game so that you're actually moving from panel to panel in places uh, and it does really interesting things with that. Like 
you know, uh, cutout panels that will then expand to become a fight arena where, you know, you're running gun for a little bit. There are some powers that are reminiscent of things you've seen in other cyberpunk games, electrocution powers, sort of uh, very sort of Jedi Knight style things as well with some force pushes and whatnot. Um, and some sort of disrupting people's uh, chips that are embedded in um, very common cyberpunk game tropes. Uh, to incapacitate them, and then you take them out with your guns. Uh, but, you know, within, I will admit, within an hour of playing the game, I felt like I had played this game before, or read this novel mm. before. And I can say the same thing about another game that I will just say I like better for very specific reasons, which is a game called The Ascent, which was another Game Pass game uh, by a studio called Neon Giant. Uh, Ascent's the best-looking isometric game I've ever played. Um, there's no question of it. It took the kind of verticality you started seeing introduced in games like Diablo 3 and isometric games and actually just perfected it. Or if they didn't perfect it, it iterated on it to a degree where it made a qualitative difference in my experience of the game, in part because the entire city is stacked vertical, you know, which is again another cyberpunk trope, the kind of like mm -hmm. city that keeps going up and up, Tower of Babel style but you can see the levels and you feel the oppressiveness of the levels. And there's of course a hierarchy where the wealthy live closer to the top. Again, all pretty hackneyed. And there's a lot of hackneyed dialogue. But the thing that made this game fun for me is I like twin stick shooters and that's what this is. And it's a twin stick shooter with great powers, good gun feel uh, and just amazing visuals. But that's what it was, right? And in both of these games, I, I played them and I was just left feeling like maybe cyberpunk is just exhausted as a genre. And I, I'll say I felt that way about cyberpunk literature since maybe the year 2006, roughly. Uh, 2005, 2004, somewhere around there. Uh, and, you know, I think notably a lot of cyberpunk authors have stopped writing cyberpunk fiction. Uh, William Gibson, notably, has not written anything that you would probably usually call cyberpunk fiction since the 90s. Um, I think there's a reason for that. Uh, but the games are just coming up all the time. And I think Foreclosed and The Ascent do some really interesting things aesthetically, but I was still left wondering, like, I wonder if they could have done this for another kind of game and it would have been amazing. And that's not fair, mm. but I'm wondering what you guys think about like the prospects of cyberpunk games. And I know Roger and I both played Cyberpunk 2077, which is a game I enjoyed, but I would also describe as just forgettable. Uh, which is a game. Speaking I think of games you, with a high labor cost. Yeah, which is a thing you yeah. should not say about a game that had that cost, right? That's like, right. it's awful right. to think about that. Like with Last of Us Part Two, at least I can say something like, well, it's a masterpiece and that might not justify anything. But like for me, it was like one of the best games I've played. Uh, it's almost as if, it's almost as if, and I'm going to get a little academic here. It's almost it as if the failure on Cyberpunk 2077's uh, on, on them to create a coherent storyline is symptomatic of the exhaustion of cyberpunk, generally speaking. Like, <laughs> like I look at oh, this sure. stuff and it's almost as if like, I'm looking at this stuff and I'm thinking, oh, now cyberpunk looks too optimistic in a way, <laughs> you know, facing stuff like climate change, facing resurgent fascism, facing like all of this stuff. Like it's like, it's, it's, it's definitely like a 1980s, 1990s kind of genre yeah. where things are pretty crappy, but we haven't, they haven't gotten so bad that white people actually feel the need to do something about it. 
right? Like, like it's kind of like, we just kind of accept it. We just kind of accept how crappy the world is and we're just going to live with it and make our money. Like that's kind of yeah. how I see the, the cyberpunk genre. And, and uh, I don't know if that even, I don't know if that explains the 2006 date for you. Which that I doesn't kind of sound like with. escapism at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 2006 is more biographical, like autobiographical sort of accident of history yeah. than anything. I think you can make a case that 2001 and post 9-11, that there was a weird thing that happened that I don't think had to do with 9-11 in and of itself, but actually like weirdly made it so that, I mean, cyberpunk was a very Japanese American, Japanese, not Japanese American person born in America who's of Japanese descent, but Japan and America sort of as a nexus that was geographically along with Soviet era, Russia, weirdly, uh, the kind of like, you know, the political unconscious of the game of of the genre as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, and Mm -hmm. the world has changed a lot. I also think that, you know, when you see Gibson in interviews talking about, you know, coming up with Neuromancer when he's seeing kids playing in an arcade and trying to capture the experience, that sort of entrancement, you know, uh, that he was witnessing in our faces, like, there's also something there. But it's also worth noting, like, a lot of these people that were writing about cyberpunk had a really ambivalent relationship with digital yeah. technologies. Gibson, yeah. you know, is not a huge fan of digital technologies, um, even as he, you know, is like all of us sort of ensnared by them. Uh, I wonder if that gets lost when you start translating it to a video game. I wonder, can you maintain that friction in the same way that you can when you have this like weird tension between the fact that you're representing digital spaces and digital technologies, but also like cybernetics and all kinds of other high tech things. Can you have that same tension that you do when you're doing it in print as a media that some folks think is obsolete? when you're doing it at a video game, a medium where most people think of it as quote unquote, the cutting edge. Uh, is there something that happens in terms of like the media relationships there that just messes things up? Um, maybe I'm being too deep. Maybe it's just that we've seen so many cyberpunk games for the last handful mm-hmm. of years. I think there's something about the ambivalence of cyberpunk that is um, not, I mean, we, we. I think you said something about like Gibson, he hates, digital technologies but he's also ensnared by them right like and that's a sort of perfect encapsulation of in my mind the the ambivalence of cyberpunk um and i don't i don't know this may not this may not actually apply to technology per se but like it seems as though we things had like to go back to my earlier point things had just not gotten bad enough where we really understood what complicity meant like Hmm. you know what i mean like like we're ensnared in global cap. Like I, feel, I can imagine like kind of a reading, a typical reading of, of, uh, of a cyberpunk novel being kind of like we're ensnared in global capitalism and we're complicit in it. But it's almost like we kind of give ourselves like, oh, but I guess we can enjoy it then, right? Like there is this kind of weird way in which the very ensnarement becomes um less kind of like a a less a uh a need to evaluate one's own complicity in a system and more well we can't do anything about it anyway so we might as well enjoy it 
that I think mm. is part and parcel of cyberpunk. It's part of the coolness of cyberpunk um, that I think is just untenable now, maybe. Yeah, maybe that's the problem. Maybe the coolness factor has just taken on a life of its own to a degree that, you know, the grunginess and the, and the actual, the human cost of all too late, 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 late capitalism. It never uh, leaves. Yeah. It never leaves. Yeah. Ah, it's easier to go. imagine the end Leave of the world. Leave us alone. The end of capitalism. Uh, uh, but, uh, which, which yeah, is itself know. very friendly to all of these dystopias that it's easier to imagine the end of the world yeah. than the end of capitalism, that old saw. Certainly that seems like that's something going on in the background of golf club wasteland. Um, I, I also am of the mind that uh, cyberpunk isn't a particularly futuristic genre at this point. It's a nostalgic one. Um, yeah. and, and that is something that I think leaves many game designers who would love to be able to tell their own version of Neuromancer behind. Mm. Um, because they, I, I think there is a uh, presentism that I generally quite dislike amongst many game designers where there mm. is a, an effort to build hype and to iterate and to release the highly polished next best version of either this type of genre or this type of telling or this type of game mechanic or this type of mm. setting or this type of camera perspective or angle that your game is going to be the next best whatever it is uh which is very limiting in all kinds of ways mm -hmm. and when I think about, oh, you're going to make the, the next great cyberpunk thing, so many of those stories took place prior to the present year. They were cast in a future of 2016 mm -hmm. or 2007 mm -hmm. or something like that. And they were forward facing at the time, although arguably with a lot of the Orientalism built into the genre, they were always nostalgic and backwards facing, even mm -hmm. in the 80s and 90s, but even more so now. And I think that many people who are crafting games and stories in that vein haven't quite realized that the cool future, if it wasn't always past, is definitely past now, quite literally, in most of mm -hmm. the foundations of the genre. And the result of that is in moves like the ones Gibson has made, where he's much more likely to tell close future uh, or even present day versions of things where, you know, plots are taken inside of the rot of relations between consumer fashion and militarized police for example, um, I really like uh, Gibson's spook, spook country and zero history for the relationships that he draws and that kind of thing. Um, he's more likely to have weird outlandish blimps uh, shaped like penguins that are in fact surveillance drones uh, as a very plausible consumer technology than he is to be discussing hacking the cybernetic chips inside of someone's heads. Um, and, and to my mind, uh, 
that means that games that similarly explore either present day technological surveillance and complicity and all of the things, Roger, that you were talking about are, if they aren't taken as cyberpunk, maybe because they don't have quite the same aesthetics, are actually better updates on the genre than games that are self-consciously carrying the banner of the mm. genre. Um, weirdly, the example that comes to mind is the next level in Hitman 3. <laughs> uh, it's in Chongqing, China. Um, and I've played about half of it so far, and it is a mm. Deus Ex level. It's, it, that, that's the next uh, game that I'm playing in Hitman 3 is Cyberpunk, uh, Flag Bearer, Deus Ex. The reason it's a Deus Ex level is you're in the PRC surveillance state. And inside of this, you're trying to infiltrate a data facility for your former super secret assassin employer organization, um, which is helmed this data center by two truly awful people, organ harvester, you know, such and such and such and such. Uh, And all of this, it occurs to me in playing it and sneaking into this data center, which is embedded in the basement of this urban neon zone uh, is that this isn't supposed to be the future in Hitman. This is supposed to be right about now in Hitman. Hitman takes place in the present. Uh, It isn't trying to be a cyberpunk game, but somewhere along the line, someone at IO Interactive said, hey, we could just have Deus Ex be the present sneak through the vent into the security system of the underground illegal data facility and do all the cyberpunk things and the cyberpunk stuff. But it, but it's not cyberpunk and it doesn't have to be. Um, all of the evil things of grinding an underclass, literally ripping apart their bodies for illegal medical experimentation and paying them a pittance. Uh, yeah, that sounds cyberpunk. Hitman 3 says, eh, doesn't have to be cyberpunk. It can just happen right now. And it, 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 I, I was halfway through the level and I had that thought and I thought, yeah, okay. Uh, that there's an interesting thing going on here where somewhere along the lines, people at IO Interactive looked at Deus Ex, which is itself uh, a nostalgic piece of gaming now. It's a, the original is a retro game uh, and thought, let's just have this level be that uh, in our present day story. <laughs> It, it makes me wonder if, like, if if cyberpunk's actually, instead of being, you know, symptomatic or of of any kind of historical situation, it's actually doing the opposite at this point, kind of becoming an excuse to like ignore present day struggles, where we can just mm. say like, oh, this stuff is in the future. We don't have to, you know, there might be automation and stuff that we have to deal with in the future, but it's really about technology, and it's really in the future rather than doing what you said, Don, which is like, no, this stuff is happening right now. You know, this is like, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're waiting for all of the, the neon and shiny and chrome stuff. And, uh, in, you know, you're waiting for your privacy to be violated and all of your information to be collected and for uh, your personality to be completely owned by corporate entities. And, and you're waiting for this? That's odd. You think that'll happen tomorrow? 
By the way, this is like totally related to my non-gaming recommendation. <laughs> Very good. Why don't we just transition right into that then i think it's a good time to do our non-game recommendations yeah roger hit us up so i just recently watched uh rodney asher's glitch in the matrix i don't know if you all have seen this documentary it's on hulu i think i think that's Hmm. where i saw it um but i just recently so i i you know recently watched the matrix resurrections trailer and i know a lot of people a lot of my friends were really excited about it and i'm sitting here kind of saying with uh, Lily Wachowski. Oh, we're doing this again? Oh. And um, <laughs> it, it was interesting because like, and I, you know, I, I have all, all faith in the director. I, you know, uh, uh, but like, it's just really interesting right now that this is happening, right? Because um, Glitch in the Matrix is really about the history of the idea of whether we're living in a computer simulation. And they're talking to a lot of the thinkers um, that have expressed this idea. Um, there are, you know, televised interviews with, you know, when, before he died, Philip K. Dick talking about this idea at a conference in the 70s. Um, and there's also a few uh, clips from, from Elon Musk saying very similar things. Um, but one of the interesting things I think about the glitch in the matrix is that it really, I don't, I'm not entirely sure that it, that it underlines the point, uh, enough, but it actually does bring up the relationship between the matrix and the various right wing, uh, Mm. uh, things that have happened in the past 20 years. And by this, I mean, not only red pilling, right. The the phenomenon, rights activism, yeah. Yeah, the incels say that, you know, you're introduced to the idea that the world isn't what you thought it was, um, you know, but also the sort of trench coat mafia people shooting up things in, in trench coats um, and, and, and you know, how these things have been so thoroughly, I don't even know, I don't know if co-opted is even the right term, um, but um, the right certainly seems to use it, white supremacists seem to use it, and it makes me wonder, like, what what room does the matrix have in our culture today? Um, and whether this narrative of, you know, I mean, in some ways it's a rejection of this idea that we live in a shared reality in a way, right? Like it's this idea that like, you know, what you thought was real, which is the social reality that you inhabit uh, is really an illusion that is manufactured by uh, these shadowy puppet governments that sit in the background and uh, are controlling you unawares and you're unaware of this, right? And so it's just fascinating coming off this this discussion of of cyberpunk. I am not sure if that, I don't know, it's weird because like as somebody who, you know, studied William Blake in my past has an interest in mysticism and altered consciousness and things like that. Certainly, I don't want to like totally disregard uh, how powerful I think the matrix can be as a kind of myth of uh, of these types of experiences. But I wonder, I wonder today in the situation we're in where, uh, you know, the primary problem is this is this fracturing of our culture, this inability to think collectively, um, mm. what the, what the matrix has to say, mm. um, 
in 2021. So it was it was a really interesting documentary to kind of to kind of ask those questions. Um, and yeah, I, I recommend it. it. It's weird because like at different at different points, I really got to this point where I was like, can you believe that the world is a simulation without kind of falling into these kind of these kind of wormholes? Um, I'm not sure. So I the only thing I want to add to that is just a fan theory. And I'm not usually one for fan theories, but I heard this on a podcast. I think it was Rebel FM, and I, it just struck me as like perfect. Uh, I could see them doing this. I could also just see them not doing this. But apparently in the trailer, there's this moment where you basically see in the background the film, The Matrix, and Mm. Keanu Reeves in the foreground. And so uh, one fan theory that's been going around is that, in fact, this new Matrix movie stars Keanu Reeves playing himself, who, in fact is actually Neo, but has been made to forget that he was ever Neo. And so this idea is that Keanu Reeves is in fact, you know, Neo who has been like brainwashed or something. And it would make sense with like the notion that there were these multiple characters. But if they did that, I would be so happy. It would be such a more like humorous (laughs) direction that I can imagine them going in. It'd be like sort of being John Malkovich by way of the Matrix. But uh, I'd be happy. A gesture like that would be the only thing that would, I think, save the film. Um, the other thing I thought of is like, what if the reality where their freedom fighters turns out to itself be a simulation and they are, in fact, fighting for the aliens that are, you know, like that they've oh, somehow sure. been manipulated yeah. to be the bad people, which I think would be uh, a statement that would be worthy of our moment, you know, the solution of complicity yeah i feel like it'd be a statement that would be good but i don't know if it would be a good film because this also it strikes me as the most obvious route it's sort of the thing i assume they kind of do Um, i mean that's a pretty direct read of the third movie of the matrix trilogy right yeah Um, you you have smith ostensibly appearing in the real world and neo is blind but somehow can see the matrix code in what is supposed to be the real world and all of those things yeah, seem to imply that no, that's just another layer of simulation. Yeah. Infinite that's regression. That's the third is, movie. Yeah. It's, it's rarely people's favorite. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's not. It's uh, all right. I, Sensate is my favorite Matrix movie. Sensate is the best. It's the best. I movie. love it's Sensate. Good. I like Sensate. It's so good. It's I never still have faith in Lily Wachowski. It's I never, so good. I never watched the second season because I knew they weren't going to finish it, and I couldn't bring myself to. Oh, they give you this like the the like final episode uh, where oh, you yeah, have to go like back a, and put a bow on it is the most like spectacular fan service. Uh, maybe I'll go back. I'll, I'll maybe I'll rewatch the series from the beginning. <laughs> You, I will you do- watch the second season and you're like, oh, this isn't going anywhere and it's doomed. And then Lily Wachowski says, right, but what if I gave you 90 minutes at the end of Sense8 where everything you wanted to happen happened and I made everyone's dreams come true? So it's just a 90-minute <laughs> sex scene. Uh, yes, it's, it is. It does culminate in an orgy. More or less. I mean, hey, of uh, what was it going to finish in anything other than an orgy? How can no, it not no, be? It like, I can't imagine being part of a Sense8 group and not just constantly having like how like what if you need to sleep like what if you need to go to bed you're really tired but oh your sensei group is 
getting it on. Like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? All right. Before we go any more on about orgies and Kowski's, I'm going to extremely briefly plug my non-game recommendation, which is Becky Chambers' uh, Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, uh, which is the best uh, Star Trek series. That's not a Star Trek series that I didn't know I wanted, uh, but I do. Uh, it has got the sort of exploratory kind of quality of Star Trek in a lot of ways, but also more kind of workerly, more, you know, working class style. It's does a great meditation on sort of like multiculturalism in the best sense, uh, and multiracial, multi-species crews. Uh, it's got a kind of light touch sense of humor. Um, and it's just surprisingly poignant at places um, in dealing with just relationships between people of various species. Uh, and that's all I'll say. Yeah. That, that does sound like it takes one of the best and, and most uh, interesting and ambitious elements of Star Trek um, in terms of a continually shifting idea of multicultural multi-species communication which is different Uh in every star trek right um and and it's yeah i mean i like the idea of continuing to pick on that theme and and grow it um and it's always different and i i like that about that whole tradition it's it's star trek by way of samuel delaney but like samuel delaney when he was really interested in sex but not just writing porn Hmm. Um, which a lot of his most recent novels, not a critique of them. I like those novels too, but are basically sort of pornographic, but novels like Trouble on Triton, where there are these like red zones and gender bending in really interesting ways. And that's some of that's happening here too in interesting ways. So but by hmm. way of Star Trek. Yeah. Uh Don, close us All with right. some amazing recommendation. <laughs> uh I've been reading Kerala uh Janice's House of Psychotic Women. Um, and, and this is a semi-autobiographical, semi-film studies, semi-horror movie guide book. Uh, and so it's interestingly constructed in the way that, um, she weaves those things together. And it's a very personal view of criticism. Uh, but as interesting as the book is, what I've really been using it for is a viewing guide. I've been watching along with Caroline Janice uh, because I I like horror movies quite a bit. And at the same time, um, it's a genre that has had so many movies produced into it throughout a history of film that there are always more horror movies and horror adjacent movies than I have watched. Um, and indeed, part of Janice's point in the book is just how many films that deal with um, trauma and psychosexual themes and things like that, which might not be overt horror movies per se, are for her bound up in what she gets out of more uh easily defined horror movies, more pulpy, jolly style horror movies, and she blends them all together. Um, And so as a result, 
just in the last week, um, I watched Bergman's The Virgin Spring, uh, which was quite a trip in some ways, um, mostly because it's an overt homage to Rashomon, which Bergman himself actually owned up to. He said it was almost a direct ripoff and he was just super into Kurosawa at the time. <laughs> so you can imagine celebrated, very serious Swedish art house director Inmar Bergman with his reputation and the images that you have instead going, oh yeah, I was just really weaving out. Uh, then that's The Virgin Spring. Interesting movie. Um, watched Antonioni's Red Desert, which is uh, a picture of a woman struggling with industrial modernity in the Ravenna port. Such a beautiful um, film. And this, oh, it's his first one in color. And it's just the reds. It's all about the reds. And the, and the grays. I mean, and he, yeah. he paints whole landscapes in solid colors. There will be a fruit cart, but everything in the cart is painted gray instead of being the actual color of fruit. Um, and, and it's just all of these. He, he just has this lust for, I'm going to, you give me color and I'm just going to be doing things in the background with it constantly as this film unfolds. Um, and, uh, then I watched Altman's, uh, images, which is the only Robert Altman horror movie. And it has this really great opening 15 minutes where it's almost like horror via rotary phone. Um, woman author is alone in her house, I think in the Irish or English countryside, actually it starts in a city center and moves to the countryside. And a friend phones her, but then halfway through, it's interrupted by this really mocking voice that seems to know things about her and her husband and it laughs at her. And it, it starts to verge out in and out of reality and in and out of ghosts of the main character's past. And then he just kind of keeps doing that and cycling on that for the next 90 minutes and it loses all of its force. And I was, I was so disappointed because the, the the setup for that one for images i'm like oh yeah and it's all shot this beautiful detailed uh touch from altman it's so dialogue focused and then it, the idea is just done to death and by the time you get to the end it's like well yeah i mean we've been slipping in and out of reality this whole time so that's what i expected to happen uh all of those together though three interesting movies lifted directly out of reading the first chapter of House of Psychotic Women and thinking, oh, I haven't seen that. <laughs> House of Psychotic Women is such a great title too. Uh, lifted itself from a Spanish pulp horror movie, uh, but only nice. the translation-related name. The better translation, it turns out, would have been something like um, House of the Blue-Eyed Dolls or something like that. <laughs> but they had to punch it up. House of Psychotic Women. Obviously, blue-eyed women in psychosis, just synonymous, <laughs> essentially. Um, Spanish, American translation, they mean the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about it. <laughs> All right, folks. It's late. It's been fun. It feels like the sort of sub-theme of today's episode is exhaustion. <laughs> how do genres get exhausted? How do players get exhausted when the things run out of steam? Uh, this is what happens when you don't give us a special topic, folks. We we meditate on 
the great entropic decline of the universe. Uh, <laughs> the end <laughs> of all things. In general. <laughs> Folks, we're done.